Hello everyone, it's May 30th, 2023, so we now know the cause of the Hokuto-R failure. It almost succeeded in being the first successful private mission to land on the moon, but it's important to know where you are in order to get where you're going, and Hokuto-R didn't. So let's talk about why and how that could be, and liftoff! We've got the Tower Welcome to episode 411 of the Open Planets Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So, Virgin Galactic made its first suborbital flight in nearly two years. <laughs> that is precisely the Space News headline I'm reading right now. <laughs> but I thought we should mention that at the top of the show. So, um, and it was successful. They're planning for like paying customers on their next flight, right? Yeah. This was the last of the, I guess, trial flights or whatever. You, I don't know what they call them, test flights. Um, and then after this, it's all paying customers. So, um, this one flew six people. I think two commanders, not really mission specialists. Pilots. That's not I a guess. thing. Pilots. <laughs> yeah. I guess that actually is exactly what they are. Yeah. Pilots. A pilot and a co-pilot. And then uh, four of the people who are actually company employees, and uh, they flew as mission specialists on this flight. So I guess they were maybe doing some kind of work or maybe not. I don't know. Hmm. But uh, maybe they just got a free ride. Yeah. That's kind of crazy because like... I, I'm just now realizing that the fact that this was called uh, Unity 25 means that they've had 25 flights. And so while there's only been a couple like that had like, you know, like the one with Richard Branson and, and this recent one, there's only been a few that I guess had crew members that weren't that weren't just being flown with by just the pilots. But I didn't realize just how many times that the pilots had flown these spacecraft. And I guess that would mean that the majority of these flights, right, are just like, you know, high altitude tests, but not at, but not not coming back from space. Because I don't know how many there have been total, but there's only been a handful that have went, uh, that have actually boosted up on that steep climb and then come back down. Like they have made it to the Carmen line, I guess, or maybe not even that high up. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, no, they don't do the Carmen line. Yeah, this is this is the eighty some kilometer ones. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, you're you're right. Only a few of those uh, of these, tw like twenty. I guess there were twenty one uh, missions with just the the pilots, and of them, it looks like only like maybe three of them actually broke eighty kilometers. Yeah. So since this was a success, uh, apparently during an earnings call, they said that they plan to fly on regular intervals, but there's no details about what that means, like how regular, like how often they're talking about. I don't know, but uh, that's the plan going forward. Mm. I guess congratulations. It's they're one step closer. I mean, I guess this is the final step, and then uh, it's commercial. Let's see if they can make money. Hakuto R failure analysis. So we finally have a answer to what went wrong with the Hakuto landing. This is one of those episodes where we get to analyze how something went wrong. <laughs> There's always so many ways that things can go wrong. And I think that one of them very often is software that's not properly vetted and not designed necessarily to, I guess, account for certain scenarios, landing scenarios in this case. Yeah. And th this, this one falls into the, like the organization culture issue. Um, I mean, maybe it's not a culture issue, but it's, it's an organizational process kind of an issue, but like, let's, let's talk about the, the good things first. Um, iSpace confirmed that they, uh, achieved their target speed, which was less than one meter per second. Um, and they did so in their target attitude, which is like an upright attitude. The only problem, uh, let me, 
let me go grab this quote uh, that's at the end of their press release because it kind of cracked me up. Um, so this quote is coming from Takashi Hakamada, founder and CEO of iSpace. And they say, Mission 1 demonstrated a great deal of technical reliability as our lander reached the lunar surface just prior to landing, which is um, really an hmm. interesting uh technical way to put this because it's it's kind of true but like it describes things in a technical manner but fails to mention like the key point which this isn't intending to be deceptive because the entire uh press release is like talking about what went wrong but just kind of cracks me up the way that you can talk about things in a technical way and it kind of hides that so the the big issue uh after they showed all of this technical reliability achieved i think eight out of their 10 major milestones like all that the one problem is that they got to their target speed and attitude for landing at the wrong altitude. They were five meters, five kilometers above the surface. And that's when they shut off their engines and the, the lander goes, okay, let me just settle gently onto the, onto the lunar surface. And instead did a Wiley E coyote fall from five kilometers <laughs> up. I don't think that it turned off its engines. I think actually it just continued to lower itself at a very slow speed until it ran out. And apparently yeah. the thrust ran out like asymmetrically. So there was one engine that was still firing and it kind of started to spin uh, and then it, you know, eventually crashed. So sure. Yeah. I, I totally forgot about that, but um, the spinning is really interesting. You can actually see it um, in Doppler analysis analysis uh of the of the radio emissions from the from the lander yeah i totally forgot about that part but i i don't know how long its free fall was um i i think i think its free fall was from about five kilometers from reading the article but with that prior knowledge it couldn't have been that high um their error i don't think would, I don't think it would make sense for them to have an error that's big enough for them to slowly descend and then fall from five kilometers. I think they must have decided they were doing their final descent at five kilometers and then fell from some altitude lower than that. Um, um, and so what's interesting is that this isn't like a mission design issue. Like they didn't incorrectly uh, program their landing sequence or something. It really was an altitude determination issue. The lander really did think that it was about to touch down on the surface. And this problem is something that we've seen over and over. It's surprisingly hard to know exactly how high you are from the surface uh, of a planetary body because we are very careful to ignore bad data the problem is that we don't define bad data well enough and we wind up throwing out good data quite often, it seems like, as a species, <laughs> as an engineering species. So the problem is that the vehicle is flying sideways, right? There's a lot more lateral speed than vertical speed that they have to worry about. So it's flying over the surface of the moon and it's using a radar altimeter to ping the surface and see how high it is. And that's one sensor being added to a lot of other data. But uh, they fly over the rim of a crater and essentially see a three kilometer cliff on the surface. And so the radar altimeter reports, uh, you know, oh, we're, you know, X number of kilometers above the surface. Now we're X minus, you know, 0 0.1 kilometers over the surface. Oh, now we're X minus three kilometers over the surface 
or I guess X plus three kilometers, right? The, the cliff drops away. And now, now suddenly we're three kilometers higher than we used to be. And the vehicle, like the flight computer goes, Oh, that's ridiculous. I wouldn't expect to suddenly gain three kilometers in altitude in, you know, half a second. The radar altimeter must be wrong. And it ignored it. And from that point, it basically just winds up accumulating enough error that when they um, actually need to use that radar altimeter at the last minute to actually see how high they are, they're already ignoring that data. And and what <laughs> like that's the immediate issue, right? Like that's the 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 proximal error, the kind of the root error goes much, much farther back. And, um, Mike Stewart in the chat has a lovely, um, document that I'm, I'm assuming Mike scanned. Um, Mike put the, the link in the discord. I'll include it in the, um, in the show notes. It's a document that shows how NASA accounted for random cliffs on the moon's surface. Oh, Mike says uh, Don Isles actually scanned that one himself. That's very cool. So um, this document is from the Draper Lab, which is uh, like really cool. And um, it's uh, titled Luminary Memo uh, one number 147. So Luminary is like a particular build. And so what they did was they actually incorporated a very basic terrain model um, in the lunar lander's uh, software. And so what it, what it did was it had this rough understanding of what a rough expectation of what the landing site would look like. Um, and then was able to, um, adjust its radar altimeter data so that the radar altimeter data was instead of reporting a surface altitude was roughly reporting an absolute altitude. Like, what would you call it? Like a pressure altimeter on earth would report. Um, the altitude above a, a theoretical sphere. And the I, I just love this um, this document because it really shows uh, in a clear way how MIT solved this problem. And all they did was they said, okay, you know, we have to minimize how much, like the computer resources that we're taking up. So what we're going to do is we're going to say that there are five lines that represent the terrain surface. And this is a, this is a two dimensional model, right? Um, and so we're going to build some sort of terrain model on approach to our landing site. And we're going to describe it in these line segments. And so each line only needs two variables, the distance from the landing site at which that line segment starts and the slope of the line over its distance. Um, you could get up to five line segments. You could do fewer than five line segments pretty easily to add additional ones. You'd have to start taking up more computer memory. You'd have to have a place to store it. And then you'd have to tweak the program, uh, presumably to tell it that it could access more than, than five line segments. And then before you get to the beginning of that first line segment, it's modeling, uh, a sphere or actually a circle. Cause it's two dimensional, but, um, like, this model takes into account the curvature of the moon's surface. And like, it's really, really lovely. And in this document is um, all the, the data for this model that they used uh, for landing at Framoro. And you can see there is 
there is a really deep, uh, in this case, it looks like a V-shaped canyon, but in reality, it's a, it's a crater. And like you can see that this really would have uh, messed with you if you didn't know it was coming. And Apollo, like these Apollo engineers came up with such a beautiful low power way of doing this. Like they specifically, MIT's document specifically cites that they're trying to reduce or have as small of an impact on computational load on the processor as possible. And like they did it like, yeah, you don't need this super detailed three-dimensional, you know, high polygon map. You don't need it. You need five line segments. And uh, iSpace, unfortunately, appears to have modeled the moon as a perfect sphere. They forgot that they weren't landing on a billiard ball, unfortunately. And so you'd think, how in the world would this get past quality control? And the thing is that it it was fine going through quality control based on their first landing site. They did simulations and you know, tested the actual software that the software and, and hardware, presumably that's going to the moon, they run it through a simulation and it works just fine. And then after critical design review, they picked a new landing site and I guess decided not to rerun their, their landing simulations. Cause if they would have, they would have seen this cliff interrupt <laughs> the voting system that uh, allows you to eliminate uh, bad sensors. So the the press release says that this was one major contributing factor uh, moving the landing site um, after CDR. Um, and like, I wonder, does this mean that you should have completely gone through CDR again? No, I don't think so. Um, what I think it means is that when you do your CDR, if you're including things like landing site simulations, if you only use one landing site as your test criteria for a CDR, right? The, this is this is an important review milestone, the CDR. If you're going to get to CDR and you're incorporating simulation data, you need to be looking at more than one landing site, even if you don't think you're going to go to a different landing site. Because even if you do the, the simulation and it fails, if you understand how it failed, that can still like be part of the qualification process for the actual situation that you expect to, to encounter. And I think if, if your CDR doesn't catch something like assuming that the moon is smooth, then you've got a bad CDR process. And that, that's why I'm calling this like a culture issue. It's, it's not culture. There's something else. There's another word that I just can't think of, but like this, this is a bad design for a CDR and it allowed an unfortunate, but not a bad design, an unfortunate design choice for the vehicle to make it through. They would have caught this if they, if they had a better review process. But anyway, they said that they, you know, have learned from this and they're going to incorporate in the future. Um, and they are exactly incorporating the two things that you really need to, not just one. The one that you have to, but you can't stop at is updating the software. You got to do that or you're not going to survive the next mission. But then they don't stop there. They also say that they're going to expand the scope of their preparatory simulations, which is great. I think they probably also need to look at CDR their CDR process and decide if there are any other assumptions that CDR is making that it shouldn't, but like, great. I think their next lander is probably going to be successful. I mean, like they proved everything up to this point. Um, and it's just really unfortunate that they wound up landing in the one place, <laughs> not the one place, but they wound up landing in a place that totally fit into the little like 
chink in the armor, like the little sliver that they weren't protecting against. And they just happened to pick a landing site that, that had that issue. And it's not even an issue at the landing site, right? It's an issue kilometers before the landing site. It really sucks. It really, really sucks. But it's a lesson learned. And I, I think they're going to do much better on the next shot. I, th- I think they show every single indication of being able to successfully land on their next mission. I'm just surprised. I mean, just knowing what I know now about this, of course, you know, things are always obvious in hindsight, but it's like you're going to land in a crater. How do you not make any changes yeah. to the mission design and the software and all that? Like, it, that seems like a pretty big deal. Well, and there, there's a sentence in here that really confuses me. Uh, this modification influenced the verification and validation plan despite numerous landing simulations carried out before the landing. iSpace, this is what this is what gets me. iSpace, as the mission operator, maintained overall program management responsibility and took into account the modifications in its overall analysis related to completing a successful mission. But they didn't, right? The, the sentence after that is, it was determined that prior simulations of the landing sequence did not adequately incorporate the lunar environment. So, like, it, <laughs> your pri- prior simulations are bad, then how can you say that you took into account modifications, Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I ran this past my partner who is not a space person and I, I don't know. I think I kind of agree. I think I kind of disagree, but the idea is that maybe this is to indicate that they did some modifications and they just weren't extensive and like they didn't do enough, but they did do something, which seems like a really weird way to like try and save face. I think really this is like saying we should have done this and we failed to do it. But I don't know. It just seems pretty simple, at least according to, you know, what we've read. There's an inertial measurement unit, which determines the altitude. Then there's a laser rangefinder, which also pings the surface and determines the altitude. And with those two things alone, you can't account for a crater. Yeah, unless you know the crater is there. And if you're doing simulations, like how hard is it to just throw like you don't need a completely random terrain set, but like throw in a couple of different landing site models like that's all you need to do. Like it, it doesn't really cost that much time to, to just. Yeah, you're not hot firing an engine. You're you're simulating something. Yeah, right. Just, I mean, it shouldn't stop at the simulations, but like they didn't even get to the same. I don't know. It really, it feels really disappointing that that CDR would have missed this. It's totally fine for this to have happened and then be caught. That's that's fine. But for CDR not to catch something big like this seems really crazy to me. I guess the race continues to see who will be the first <laughs> private company to land on the moon. <laughs> yep. So let's just do two short and sweets this week. Dennis, what's he first? Virgin Orbit assets sold off. A recent filing with federal bankruptcy court revealed that the companies Rocket Lab, Stratolaunch, and Vast had made winning bids on Virgin Orbit's assets, putting an end to any opportunity for the horizontal launch provider to return to flight under new ownership. Rocket Lab bid $16.1 million for the lease of Virgin Orbit's Long Beach production facility to be used for the former's Neutron launch vehicle. Stratolaunch acquired Virgin Orbit's Boeing 747 and related equipment, while Vast won the lease to their test site in Mojave, California. Then next up, ESA folds out a new heat shield. ESA, in collaboration with manufacturer Spaceforge, is developing a new foldable heat shield that can be used to re-enter spacecraft intact for retrieval. The heat shield, named Pridwen, unfolds in an origami-like fashion, using its high-temperature alloy fabric and high-temperature surface area to absorb and radiate heat during re-entry. 
The shield has already been tested in drop tests up to 17 kilometers. Capture tests have also been conducted with objects falling at terminal velocity. Pridwin's first orbital flight will be aboard the Forge Star 1A mission later this year. Okay, let's move right along to this week in spaceflight history. Uh, we have four winners. We have Delta V Dan, who is correct, but three other winners get the bonus points, <laughs> uh, who are Uncle Willie, the Greek, and Psykyle. So three bonus points, one without the bonus points, and the clue was King to G8. So this was obviously a, some kind of a chess reference. And as it turns out, I think it actually is a reference to chess. So there was no uh, yep. like metaphor or anything here. <laughs> so what is this chess and what does it have to do with space? Yeah. And also why king to G8? Yeah, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. We'll get there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this week in spaceflight history is the 1st of June, 1970. Uh, yeah, that's right. We're, we're already into June here in 2023. Oh, boy. Um. <laughs> So the 1st of June, 1970, it was the launch of Soyuz 9. Um, and Soyuz 9 did a couple of interesting things. So first off, the two people on board were uh, Andrian Nikolaev, uh, who is better known as the husband of Valentina Tereshkova. I honestly, I considered just referring to him as Valentina Tereshkova's husband throughout this and not actually saying his name, <laughs> but two wrongs don't make it right. <laughs> and the other person on board was Vitaly Sevestyanov. So the, the thing that I think Soyuz 9 is most notable for is breaking the on-orbit endurance record. Um, and this is specifically for um, single vehicle missions, right? Going to ISS doesn't count. The record was previously held uh, by Lovell and Borman on board Gemini 7, which lasted 14 days, almost 14 days. I think a better unit here is orbits. So the previous record was 206 orbits by Lovell and Borman. Soyuz 9 lasted for 288 orbits. That's uh, almost 18 days, I believe, or just over 18 days. This was also the final flight of the Soyuz 7KOK. A lot of improvements happened immediately after this flight, if I remember correctly. Um, it was also the first uh, nighttime crewed launch uh, that I believe anybody had done, but definitely that the Soviet Union had ever done. And what's kind of interesting is like now we fly people and things at all times of day and night it doesn't really matter. But back then there was like a lot of debate around whether the astronauts should just stay up all night or if they should shift their sleep schedule around. And it, yeah, it just, it seemed like people were making a much bigger deal out of it than it really uh, would be today. Uh, maybe even more than it needed to be back then. Cause like my instinct is like, let them do what they want. If they want to move their schedule around, accommodate, their sleep schedule. Chris in the chat says the science of fatigue is pretty huge. Yeah, I agree. Like it, if these people want to move their schedule, let them move it. If not like, yeah, maybe have some additional precautions somewhere, but like shouldn't, this shouldn't be a big debate. The mission was in terms of science was pretty straightforward and a little boring. Uh, they did a lot of earth observation, um, they did, you know, like photography of uh, land, uh, the ice caps, uh, water, uh, freshwater and saltwater bodies, uh, weather phenomena, like atmospheric stuff. Um, they did some uh, astronomical uh, photography. They practiced astronavigation, right? Like navigating by hand, um, using like a sextant and things, which is just like cool in how old school it is. 
they actually did a, a pretty good job. They were able to refine their orbital elements down to three decimal places by hand, which is pretty neat. And this is the, the Soviet Union. So like there wasn't a lot of talk, uh, like straightforward talk about what the purpose of this mission was. Breaking the record was probably just like an easy thing to go do. Let's go do it. But they didn't initially, like before the launch, they didn't say how long the, the mission was going to take. And after the launch, they said that they were doing a, a long flight to investigate the social implications of prolonged space flight. And I don't know. It's kind of an interesting uh, spin on what is otherwise kind of like a forgettable mission. Like, I mean, no, no, especially in the early uh, space, like human spaceflight missions, no mission is actually forgettable, but like in terms of like some of the other things that were happening in 1970, not the most interesting thing. Right. But, uh, social implications. So they, uh, made two way video calls down to their families at mission control, which is pretty cool. Um, they watched some live, uh, football, the 1970 FIFA world cup, which took place in Mexico and which I think was, it was a pretty interesting world cup, I'm not a soccer person, uh, but I think that was pretty interesting. And I think that the Soviet Union, like at least made it into some of the later rounds. Like, I think they, this would have been an interesting thing to actually watch. They voted in a Soviet election, which is definitely the funniest, <laughs> most uh, spinny thing that happened here. Uh, and of course, you know, they voted for the Soviet party candidates, probably mostly because they are on a spacecraft and they rely on a great number of Soviet party members to get them back down. They, um, they also played a game of chess. And now this is the first documented game of chess to happen, uh, in space. Uh, it's not the first documented chess board to have flown in space, but even if chess was played on previous flights, they definitely weren't played between astronauts and people on the ground. So this, this is pretty cool. They played, uh, as a team. So they needed to play against two other people. And so the two people were cosmonaut uh, Victor Gorbatko and the head of the cosmonaut department. I don't know what, what the right term is. I think his title is just head of cosmonauts, uh, Nikolai Kamenin. And this game took about four and a half hours. Um, it took longer than expected. <laughs> Chris in the chat says, so they weren't getting owned uh, by Gary Kasparov. No. So the, the game took about four and a half hours, mostly because they were um, unable to relay moves back and forth uh, in parts of the globe where they didn't have radio coverage. The board itself is pretty interesting. It's space, so you need to affix the pieces to the board. But you don't want to use magnets because, you know, they're they're using pretty sensitive equipment inside the crew compartment still at this point. And if you lose a magnet, it's not like it's just going to gum up your, you know, a fan somewhere like you could potentially do some damage. Um, so instead, they used um, like pegs and grooves and the, the board had grooves, the pieces had pegs. And so th this game, like I said, it was it was well balanced. It was uh, ended with a draw, uh, 35 moves in, not a particularly long game. And at the draw, both sides had their queens remaining and exactly five pawns each. And none of the pawns had passed each other. So like this was a very, very balanced game. It seems almost scripted. Um, I actually have a link to chessgames.com where you can actually um, 
play through the game like step by step. Uh, hmm. I, re- I there's a list of the moves on Wikipedia, but I really wanted to see see it played out just because I don't read chess notation that well, and like I I can't keep the state of the board in mind, like really. Um, and like, if you click through this game, it's very straightforward and balanced. And I, I think kind of scripted in sort of like this polite way, like the, the opening, uh, the opening sequence is actually the queen's gambit, right? Like, it's just, this is a formulaic, like these four people have probably played each other so many games of chess and like, they know exactly what's going on and they just like very politely play this non-aggressive very formal game of chess uh in space i i kind of love it you know uh this was this was not um grandmaster uh battling grandmaster let's keep it friendly <laughs> yeah uh so they they needed to uh conserve fuel and so what well, th- this is the story uh that they needed to conserve fuel and so they put the vehicle into this spin stabilized mode and it made uh the astronauts sick to their stomachs but I, I don't think that's actually what happened. Um, so the role that they put the vehicle into was half a degree per second, um, uh, which is shocking that half a degree per second, uh, the math works out really well. Um, half a degree per second is exactly the roll rate that you experience orbiting at that altitude or the, the sun revolves around you at, uh, half a degree per second. And so, right, a half degree per second roll really keeps your your solar panels pointed at the sun. And th- this is a Soyuz, so you'd think that that would be what they would do to begin with, right? Like, go into a sun-facing attitude and just leave it there. But, like, this would mean that the Earth is going around you, but it doesn't mean that you are spinning relative to the universe. Like, this is about as stable as you can get um, without, like, defining your role based on the star. I mean, I guess it's based on the stars, but like, I don't understand what's going on here. Um, they would have had to do this one way or the other. And I can't find reference of a faster, like spin stabilized kind of spin on top of that. The reason that I found for this half a degree per second role was specifically like, it wasn't part of the original flight plan. Apparently this was added when they were having issues with their solar panels, not being able to charge their batteries well enough. Now, granted, like the time of year that they flew was, uh, the beta angle was really heavy. So they wind up half of their orbit being in, uh, in shadow instead of, you know, a couple of minutes out of their orbit, which is totally possible on the other end of the year. But the solar panels don't rotate on a Soyuz, especially back in the Soyuz 7K days that they were fixed solar rays. So you would have to point them at the sun anyway. So like, I have no idea why we see mention of them getting nauseated from having to do this spin stabilization. I don't see why there's mention of specifically rolling to face the sun. It seems really weird to me. Wikipedia cites a book that I don't have time to to go get. And as far as I know, (laughs) there's no digitized copy uh, available to me at this moment. So like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I think the chess game is a much better anecdote to relate to Soyuz 9 than a barbecue roll that made people sick that I can't find any evidence of happening and, you know, didn't make 
any other astronauts like the Apollo astronauts sick. So I, I have no clue. Plus, doesn't it seem odd, though, that at half a degree per second, you would even be nauseated? Right. I mean, it's hard to tell, but I don't think so. It doesn't seem like much. Yeah, it's noticeable, but yeah, it's not like significant. It, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know why this is like something that is cited as being like the one of the notable parts of this mission. Anyway, speaking of feeling sick during space flight, <laughs> um, when they uh, landed and started doing their post-flight activities. At first, it was covered up. Years later, they actually were able to, to talk about what, what actually happened, but they were absolutely miserable, right? 18 days on orbit is really going to do some damage to your body. Um, they were barely able to climb out of the vehicle, um, and luckily, the the rescue crew was like right there. They didn't have to wait very long, but uh, they apparently weren't able to walk for multiple days. One of them had a loss of consciousness during the helicopter flight to the nearest airport. Um, and when they finally got back, they had a high fever and their medical team found that they had, uh, their hearts had shrunk. they had actually contracted just super, super bad, like, uh, body deterioration on orbit for this flight. Um, 18 days is a long time, but it doesn't seem long enough to do this kind of damage. And what's interesting. Well, so first off, they did do some exercise. They set aside an hour for quote unquote rudimentary exercise every day, uh, which clearly wasn't enough to avoid these issues, but also they went into uh, quarantine immediately after the flight, which in some places was cited as being sort of a, a leftover bit of the Soviet lunar program, which they were still holding on to. Some people said it might have had to do with something else. The fact that they had a high fever makes me think that maybe that's why they were put into quarantine. But also they were put into quarantine before the flight uh, because there was like an outbreak of dysentery or something like right before their flight. Um, so I wonder if they were just sick during the flight and somebody got their wires crossed and attributed it to this role, which wasn't fast enough to, to make anybody sick. Um, and I wonder if there wasn't a faster roll than half a degree a second. And I wonder if they were just miserable the whole flight because they had picked up some bug. I don't know. Like, it, mm -hmm. I don't think this is something that will, will really have hard, uh, accounts of like, you know, very trustworthy accounts, but, um, that's Soviet early Soviet space for you. I'm seeing something, uh, maybe a carbon dioxide problem <laughs> it might have been higher than normal because apparently the mission like you said was like 17 18 days which apparently is like three to four times longer than that soyuz is designed for yeah and so maybe there was some the, carbon dioxide that wouldn't be shocking would it yeah and that kind of you know the symptoms that you were talking about that i, I don't know i'm no doctor but <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it resulted in a lot of the stuff uh, that we saw there. So, well, at least if you're gonna do a stupidly long mission in just a single spacecraft, at least you got the two different rooms you can hang out in. <laughs> Even if it was longer than that Gemini mission, that Gemini one still must have been tougher. I, I would rather be in so I would rather have done Soyuz nine than Gemini seven. I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> But yeah, that's This Week in Spaceflight History, the launch of Soyuz 9. All right. Well, thanks, Ben. Uh, it's good to know. It's cool to know that chess was played in space. I'm sure it's been played mm -hmm. many times since then. Oh, right. right. Well, so I, I actually didn't mention what the clue was. That was the final move. King to G8 was the final move. 
Oh, okay, cool. All right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember asking why King to G8. Okay, thank you. <laughs> yep. So, Dennis, you have the twisted for next week. Uh, the date range is the 6th of June through the 12th. And do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 2007, Chunky Boy. I feel like that's a very Dennis clue. That's like a clue that yeah. you would do. <laughs> I don't know why. I hope it works. I think that you've referred to your cat several times as a chunky boy. Oh. But uh, okay, so if this week's event had to do with chess, I'm assuming next week is cats. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> if you think you know what that clue is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF, And you can also let us know on our Discord as well, I believe. And uh, good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right, so let's do upcoming spaceflight events then. We have... Five events, four of them launches. Uh, one of them looks like a news conference. Uh, and Dennis, what is the first launch? Well, the first of all these launches are Falcon 9s, by the way. <laughs> so we have a uh, Falcon 9 Block 5 on Wednesday, May 31st, taking Starlink Group 210 to LEO. Uh, you all know how this works. Uh, this is going to be a West Coast launch from Vandenberg with a window from 0527 to 0715. UTC. Then after that, on the 1st, we have another Falcon 9 with Starlink Group 6-4. And this is a obviously a Falcon 9 Block 5 um, launching another batch of Starlink satellites. The uh, window for that is at 11.04 UTC through 14.15 UTC, launching from Slick 40 at the Cape. After that, there is a news conference covering the upcoming uh, IROSA spacewalks. Um, so the Participants are going to be the operations integration manager uh, for the ISS program, uh, the spaceflight flight director, uh, Diane Daly, um, and then a spaceflight officer from NASA Johnson. And so these are covering two upcoming spacewalks. So this will be the fifth and the sixth uh, IROSA uh, spacewalks. The actual spacewalks themselves will be happening June 9th and June 15th. But this news conference is going to be happening on Thursday, June 1st at 12 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, and you can watch that on NASA TV. And then next up on June 3rd, we've got a little variety from our Falcon 9s. And this particular Falcon 9 Block 5 will be taking Dragon CRS-2 or SpaceX 28. So the 28th uh, Commercial Resupply Services mission to the ISS. And so this launch, uh, again, on June 3rd, Saturday, uh, will take place at 1635 UTC, an instantaneous uh, launch time. And it will be flying out of the Cape at Launch Complex 39A. And then finally, on June 5th, we have another Falcon 9 Block 5, and that's launching Starlink Group 511. <laughs> so uh-huh. I guess just exactly the same thing I said as before, uh, except the window for this is from... Uh, 0615 UTC through 1306 UTC. Uh, Launching again from the Cape at Slick 40. So same launch pad, just a couple days later. I saw saw a tweet or something how this was like one of the fastest turnarounds that's ever happened at uh, Slick 40. Wow. Four days later. All right. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Okay, which means it's time to give up the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Chris, a.k.a. Stig Garfield, and Mike for joining the recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com, and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're an orbital podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you on this week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.